Israel Week in Review. I'm your host, Ben Ronsman. Today is Tuesday, October 19th. In about 15 minutes per week, you can gain insight into the top stories taking place in Israel and the broader Middle East. We also provide you with explorations of history, culture, politics, and more. Visit IsraelWeekInReview.com to receive updates and hard-hitting content. Israel Week in Review is brought to you by Cleveland Jewish Funerals. Cleveland Jewish Funerals has opened a new funeral home on Miles Road, conveniently located near Orange and Solon. They conduct Jewish funerals for every Jewish denomination, from Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, and the Unaffiliated. To learn more about pre-planning, contact Community Liaison David Pearl, clevelandjewishfunerals.com. This program is also supported by Origin Story Marketing. Search engine optimization is essential in today's business environment. To learn more about how Origin Story Marketing can help customers find your business, visit OriginStoryMarketing.com. Thank you, listeners, for your patience. I suspect that some of you had assumed that this project had fizzled out. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, in the coming weeks, you'll see our output increase significantly. We're in the midst of constructing a studio that will allow us to greatly expand our offerings and move into the realm of video. Stay tuned for enhanced content featuring Cleveland Jewish history, interviews, short documentary features, and more. I just want to assure our listeners that this time has been spent enhancing our ability to produce more and better content. I'm very excited for this project to proceed. Ever since Syria's descent into civil war in 2011, the security situation of Israel's northern neighbor has been highly fluid. The Assad government lost much of its territory in the early days of the war, largely to the Islamic State, known in Arabic as Daesh. However, the situation has almost entirely been reversed, and the Assad regime has largely regained control over the country, albeit at a frightful human cost. The Syrian regime would never have been able to reverse its initial losses and reestablish effective control over the country without the intervention of two critical allies, Iran and Russia. The concerns about Iran's increased influence in the region have been a motivating factor for a number of geopolitical developments in recent years, most notably the rapprochement between Israel and the Sunni Arab states of the Gulf. But the rise of Iranian proxies throughout the region is a story for another day. Today's discussion will largely focus on Russia's wildly successful involvement in Syria. This success is an indication that Russia has restored much of its military power, prestige, and influence, an influence that had largely dissipated alongside the dissolution of the Soviet Union. The collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 initiated a period of tremendous instability, dislocation, and weakness. The Soviet Union's primary successor state, the Russian Federation, was largely impotent on the world stage. Russia's foreign policy posture from 1991 to 1996 was largely accommodating to U.S. interests, in large part because there was little alternative. During this period of time, Russia experienced dramatic upheavals within its economy and society. The United States was perceived to be the undisputed victor of the Cold War. The U.S. enjoyed absolute primacy in the international arena. This served as a high-water mark for American influence and prestige globally. Those of us who were fortunate enough to witness this moment in history will likely not see such power and prestige invested in one nation again. During this fleeting moment, we inhabited a unipolar world. Academics and intellectuals such as Francis Fukuyama busied themselves ruminating on the implications of American and Western victory. The influential tome, The End of History and History and the Last Man, argued that the progression of history as a clash of ideologies had unexpectedly come to an end in a conclusive manner. The remainder of human history would primarily be concerned with the universalization and spread of Western liberal democracy. While such views now seem naive and hopelessly outdated, this was the prevailing opinion amongst policymakers and thought leaders in the West. 
From 1991 to 1996, the Russian Federation was primarily concerned with the sheer survival. Exercising global influence was not a possibility. In fact, the Russian Federation struggled to maintain its own territorial integrity. The loss of the Baltic states, Georgia, Belarusia, Ukraine, and a host of Central Asian republics were shocking to the sensibilities of many who had considered themselves to be loyal Soviet citizens. The Russian military's performance against Islamic separatist movements in the Caucasus, in Dagestan and Chechnya, demonstrated the difficulty Russia faced in defending its own territorial integrity, let alone protecting force outside of its own borders. This period is seared into the memory of countless millions of Russians who viewed the disintegration of the Soviet Union and its subsequent economic, military, and diplomatic collapse as a tragedy of near-apocalyptic proportions. Indeed, Vladimir Putin has described the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. While such musings may sound provocative to Western ears, these opinions are simply foundational to Russia's foreign policy establishment. Amongst Russian foreign policy makers, no one has done more to shape post-Soviet strategy than Yevgeny Primakov, a figure who remains largely unknown in the West, outside a small group of foreign policy mavens. But who was Yevgeny Maximovich Primakov, and how have his views shaped Russian foreign policy in the 21st century? What are the implications of Mr. Primakov's thought for Israel in the Middle East? Yevgeny Maximovich Primakov was a Soviet and later Russian intelligence officer, diplomat, and politician. He served as foreign minister, Speaker of the Supreme Soviet of the Soviet Union, and the first chief of Russia's intelligence services, the successor to the formidable KGB. Primakov was born in Kiev, Ukraine, in 1929, but was reared in Tbilisi, the capital of the Georgian Soviet Socialist Republic. Interestingly, both of these territories were essential parts of the Soviet firmament, but are now capitals of independent states. This historical fact almost certainly had an impact on Mr. Primakov's thought. Like millions of others, Primakov viewed himself first and foremost as a Soviet citizen, albeit the Russophone Soviet, who lived in two regions where other languages were spoken and given official recognition, even though Russian was the undisputed lingua franca of the Soviet Empire. Interestingly, both of Mr. Primakov's parents were ethnically Jewish, and their family name was originally Finkelstein, a glaringly Jewish family name that was wholly unsuitable to Mr. Primakov's later role as a KGB agent operating under the cover of an Arabic-speaking Pravda journalist in the Middle East. Perhaps in response to discrimination during the Soviet period, Mr. Primakov's father served a stint in the Siberian Gulag under Joseph Stalin. The family name was changed to the unreproachably Gentile Primakov. They are examples of that phenomenon described by the Jewish-born socialist Isaac Deutscher as non-Jewish Jews. Ethnic Jews who have Jewish family backgrounds, but do not maintain any sense of obligation to the Jewish people generally. These non-Jewish Jews were historically concerned with left-wing causes. Isaac Deutscher was the definitive biographer of that quintessential non-Jewish Jew, Leon Trotsky. Deutscher himself would have accepted this mantle. It seems that Yevgeny Primakov and his parents could be defined this way as well. For these people, Jewish heritage and ancestry is a burden that must be overcome. In fact, many of these people may work especially hard to demonstrate that they do not retain any loyalty to some collective notion of Jewish peoplehood. By all accounts, the former Finkersteins, later Primakovs, were loyal Soviet citizens who assiduously sought to distance themselves from their Jewish roots. Primakov studied at the Moscow Institute of Oriental Studies and later did postgraduate work at Moscow State University. He ultimately became a fluent Arabic speaker who was sent to countries throughout the Arab world and the United States in the service of the KGB. During the twilight years of the Soviet Union, Mr. Primakov served in Mikhail Gorbachev's Presidential Council of the Soviet Union. In a little-remembered historical footnote, Mr. Primakov was Mr. Gorbachev's special envoy to Iraq, where he held talks with Saddam Hussein. 
At this time, Primakov was strongly opposed to American involvement in Iraq, but this opposition was of little consequence. America had assembled a coalition of 35 nations to roll back Iraq's occupation of Kuwait. The Soviet Union, on the other hand, was on the verge of collapse. This experience of Soviet impotence in the face of American-led global domination must have left a strong impression on Primakov. From 1991 to 1996, Primakov transitioned the Soviet KGB into the Russian Federation's Foreign Intelligence Service, serving as its first director. From 1996 to 1998, Mr. Primakov served as the Russian Foreign Minister, and it was at this time that he began to articulate a philosophy known as the Primakov Doctrine. The Primakov Doctrine was a direct response to what Mr. Primakov viewed as American global hegemony and unilateralism. The tenets of the Primakov Doctrine have shaped post-Soviet thinking, and its crowning achievement has been Russia's wildly successful campaign in Syria. First and foremost, the Primakov Doctrine seeks to create a multipolar world where American dominance is no longer taken for granted. This doctrine seeks to create a concert of global powers consisting of Russia, China, and perhaps secondarily India and the European Union. These countervailing powers would serve to offset America's predominance in global affairs. Most importantly, Russia seeks to ally itself with China and to minimize any historical or geopolitical grievances that have existed between these two countries. Both Russia and China are Pacific naval powers that share both maritime and land borders. Indeed, Russia and China share a border that is amongst the longest in the world. In the last few decades, China has become Russia's number one trading partner globally. Both countries are committed to reducing American power and global prestige. While each country may have pretensions of becoming a global superpower themselves, they have much to gain by cooperating in reducing the United States a notch or two. The Primakov Doctrine also seeks to maintain Russia's nuclear deterrence. The doctrine does not espouse risky nuclear saber-rattling, but there is a recognition that Russia's nuclear deterrence is a cornerstone and guarantor of Russia's strategic independence. To this end, Russia has retained the world's largest nuclear arsenal and has invested in updating and improving their capabilities in this realm. Russian strategic thinking also remains committed to two goals, which are in many ways closely related. Russia insists on military predominance within the former Soviet sphere. It is also equally committed to ensuring that NATO expansion is checked. Russia has created an economic cooperation union consisting of much of the former Soviet realm, called the Commonwealth of Independent States. When two former Soviet republics began to romance the West, while openly calling for entry into NATO, Russia demonstrated how seriously it views such developments. Both Ukraine and Georgia's stated attempts to join NATO were treated with the utmost seriousness. Crimea was conquered and annexed, while Russian separatist movements in eastern Ukraine were supported, trained, and funded. In Georgia, two ethnic minorities, the Abkhaz and Ossetians, were trained, funded, and armed by Russia. The breakaway republics of Abkhazia and South Ossetia are recognized by Russia, as well as a handful of its allies, including Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Syria. These engagements essentially froze NATO discussions in their tracks, where they are likely to remain. Another example of the Primakov Doctrine is to use military force judiciously, while avoiding reckless military entanglements. To this end, Russia has avoided the use of overwhelming force, preferring a hybrid model that uses cyber warfare, special forces, traditional military forces, and complex psychological operations. These tools were all used to great effect in Russia's military engagements in both Ukraine and Georgia. In both of these conflicts, infrastructure such as electricity, gas, and internet were all shut down by Russia's cyber warriors. Highly trained special forces were inserted into critical areas, such as Crimea. Some special forces were disguised as local militias in the predominantly Russophone Ukrainian regions of Donetsk and Luhansk.
Of course, Russia's traditional military forces, air forces, air defenses, and infantry units were all used to great effect. Russia has also become quite adept at psychological operations that leverage internal divisions amongst their adversaries. In Georgia, this was done by trying to exacerbate ethnic divisions between Abkhaz and Georgian populations. In Ukraine, tensions between ethnic Ukrainians and Russians were also exacerbated. And in the United States, the skillful use of social media troll farms has been used to great effect in order to deepen ethnic and ideological rifts in American society. These policies have leveraged Russia's military capabilities and given them maximal effect. Like a judoka who leverages the strength and weight of an opponent against them, these policies have achieved maximum impact with minimal military exposure. When Russia intervened in Syria, many outside observers were surprised. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia had only intervened in states that were formerly a part of the Soviet realm and bordered Russia. Russia's ability to project force outside of its own borders was actively called into question. Russia's interventions in the Middle East, while decisive during the days of the Cold War, had virtually ceased. Nonetheless, Russia was able to save a longtime ally in Syria. The Assad regime had been one of the Soviet Union's most reliable allies during the Cold War. Russian special forces, air power, air defenses, weapon sales, and limited ground troops were used to great effect, essentially allowing the Assad regime to slowly but surely reconquer the territory. Russia's involvement in Syria once again makes Russia a major player in a region that it had largely retreated from in the wake of the Cold War. Its force projection was limited, but decisive. Russia did not try to conquer the country and occupy it, as the United States had done in neighboring Iraq. Rather, it partnered with another regional power, Iran, which provided substantial numbers of ground forces through their proxy Hezbollah. The Russian forces primarily provided air support, intelligence, the judicious use of special forces, training, logistics, and of course, a steady supply of weapons, replacement parts, and military advisors. Moreover, Russia has demonstrated a commitment to a long-standing ally precisely when most prognosticators opined that the regime was finished. When it counted most, Russia provided decisive support to an ally in need. This is in stark contrast to the United States, which is increasingly seen as an unreliable partner. Those in the region remember the Obama administration's distancing itself from its decades-old regional ally Hosni Mubarak in Egypt. Later, Trump cut a side deal with the Turks that left the Kurds completely exposed, despite years of fighting side-by-side -side with American soldiers in Iraq. And of course, most recently, the Biden administration's shameful withdrawal from Afghanistan left its long-term allies exposed to the deprivations of the Taliban. America simply walked away from its commitments to the Afghan government and the coalition of allied forces that had assisted during the Afghan war. Of course, this does not mean that we're returning to the bad old days of the Cold War. Russia is not the other power in a bipolar world. Israel's relations with Russia, while not ideal, are perhaps the best they've ever been since the country's independence. Russia now recognizes Israel as a regional power that it must contend with. To this end, it has set up a deconfliction mechanism with Israel that reduces the likelihood of unintended military accidents occurring between the parties. There have been tensions between the two countries during the conflict in Syria, but these protocols remain in place. They are also a tacit Russian recognition of Israel's regional security needs. While the general trend of increased Russian military activity and prestige in the Middle East, combined with a decrease in American involvement and a diminishing opinion of America's reputation as an ally, is definitely a negative development for Israel. There have been some unexpected benefits, however. Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and other Gulf states have come to the conclusion that the United States will not come to their rescue vis-a-vis -vis Iran. This forced them to consider looking for other military allies in a difficult region. 
The only regional ally worth mentioning in this regard is, of course, Israel. The defense postures of these Arab states and Israel were entirely complementary. The only impediment was the taboo that previously existed from recognizing Israel. The last decade's regional turmoil and Iran's regional advances, coupled with concerns about American reliability, made these developments possible. So I hope you've learned a bit about Russia's strategic thinking. While they are no longer the global power they were during the days of the Cold War, they have returned to the Middle East and checked American involvement in Syria. Russia is once again a player, a skillful and astute one at that. Israel must take Russian interests, alliances, and capabilities into consideration after a prolonged absence from the region. It must be stated that Israel's single greatest strategic asset is its alliance with the United States. But Israel has options that it did not have in years past. It too is a nuclear power, with second-strike capability anywhere on the globe. It has a respected and feared intelligence service, formidable military capabilities and technologies, and now, perhaps for the first time, genuine allies aside from the United States and the region. Israel can certainly live with the resurgent Russia. In any case, it doesn't seem to have a choice. This has been Ben Rotsman from Israel Week in Review, providing you with a breakdown of this week's news from Israel, as well as thoughtful perspectives on the region's politics, history, culture, and more. Visit IsraelWeekInReview.com in order to receive regular updates and hard-hitting content. Please like us on Facebook and subscribe to the podcast on any number of channels where this program is available. This includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Stay tuned for forthcoming content, including our deep dives on various topics and upcoming interviews. Israel Week in Review is brought to you by Cleveland Jewish Funerals. Cleveland Jewish Funerals has opened a new funeral home on Miles Road, conveniently located near Orange and Solon. They conduct Jewish funerals for every Jewish denomination, from Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, and the Unaffiliated. To learn more about pre-planning, contact Community Liaison David Pearl. ClevelandJewishFunerals.com. Israel Week in Review has also been brought to you through the generous support of Origin Story Marketing, helping customers find your business through search engine optimization. To learn more, visit OriginStoryMarketing.com.